Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. This week, to discuss the little news that there is and to talk about other issues of interest to investment trust shareholders, I'm joined by Andrew McHattie, the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, and then also by Ben Conway, who is head of fund management at Hawksmoor Investment Management and has been running a campaign arguing for changes in the way that costs are disclosed for investment trusts and also some other changes that he believes boards of investment trusts should make. This will be the first part of a two-part conversation, which looks at his arguments and assesses whether they are valid or not. It's been a short week in the markets in the UK after the bank holiday last weekend, but a full week in the US markets. And generally speaking, it's been, while a quiet week for the news perspective, it's been a good one for risk assets in general. The U.S. equity market was up the best part of 3% this week, and the FTSE and all share up around 1.8% over the four days in that case. And NASDAQ also strong. Meanwhile, in the bond market, there was some movement down in yields at the shorter end of the curve, but also a slight increase at the longer maturities. A raft of economic data out in the U.S. helped to uh, concentrate mines, and the most positive sign was the latest uh, jobless figures from the U.S. economy, which showed a increase in unemployment. A good example, perhaps, of the old nostrum that bad news can sometimes be good news. Obviously, a rise in unemployment, not good news for those affected, but uh, in the context of where we are in the interest rate cycle, signs that the U.S. economy is finally slowing down a little helps to uh, encourage the view that interest rates may soon be close to peaking if we're not there already. It's increased hopes that the Federal Reserve will pause its uh, interest rate increases at its next meeting in September and possibly until the end of the year. But these things do change quite uh, rapidly. But in the short term, that was positive. The Investment Trust Index, uh, reflecting that movement in equity markets, was up 2% on the week and the discount narrowed a little. So some signs of progress here too. Looking at the broader indicators also, the US dollar was firmed, oil prices were up, gold was also up, and copper was also moving up in the futures market. So that's an interesting set of dynamics as we move into the uh, always interesting fourth quarter of the year. Very little on the news front as far as the investment trust sector was concerned, but there were some significant price movements behind that average 2% rise in the investment trust index. The number of gainers outnumbered losers by three to one on the main list that I look at. That's hard to pick out general themes from those that did best. Best performer of the week was Geiger Counter, the trust that invests in uranium. That was up more than 10% on the week, which was a significant gain. Other risers near the top of the list included Digital 9 Infrastructure. That one's been yo-yoing up and down in a very volatile manner over the last few weeks. That was up 10%. 
Also, similarly with Seraphim Space, up 7%. And some of the infrastructure trusts also were recovering somewhat. BBGI, which I mentioned shortly, which produced some results this week, was uh, up more than 5%. And some of the small cap trusts also moving up. So, for example, Edinburgh Worldwide, which is a global small cap trust, and Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, both up around in the 5% region. Looking at the other end of the spectrum, the list of decliners, well, it included one or two specialist property trusts, Schroeder European Real Estate, down 2.6%, and some movement in some private equity trusts, Illiteracy Capital, which produced some results I mentioned in a moment, that was down 4% on the week. Shehalian was down 5%, give or take. So some of these movements are driven by specific trust factors, others by general sentiment towards specific sectors. Turning to the announcements this week, as I said, not many of note, only a couple of uh, interim results on the results front. I would pick out from there Nippon Active Value Fund, ticker NAVF, the Japanese investment trust, which takes a polite activist approach to trying to persuade Japanese listed companies to improve their corporate governance and uh, put shareholder value higher up the list of priorities. That reported NAV total return for the first six months of the year of 6.7% which was well ahead of its equivalent benchmark, up just 0.4%. The board also notes in the announcement that the discount has narrowed sharply on this particular trust. It came in briefly to around par, and that helped to produce a share price total return of 23% in the first six months of the year. That impact has faded a little since then, the discount moving out a little bit since the end of the half-year period. And that's partly reflecting the fact that this trust is going to be essentially taking on the assets of two other Japanese trusts, that's Aberdeen Japan and Atlantis Japan Growth. Those announcements came in May and August, respectively, and there'll be obviously some period of absorption while those two play out, take a few months for those to come to fruition. It's not a total surprise to see some weakness in the share price as that process goes through. However, that trust has been on a roll recently. Also reporting interims uh, this week was BB. Global Infrastructure, ticker BBGI, the Infrastructure Trust, which reported an NAV total return for the same period to the end of June of 1.1%. Though the board also noted here that the annualised rate of return on this particular trust since the IPO in 2011 has been 8.8% in NAV total return and a share price total return on the same basis of 7.4%. That lower figure being largely explained by the fact that the trust has moved out to trade at a small discount having typically traded at a premium for most of its life as an investment trust. The increase in NAV total return was despite an increase in the discount rate at which the company uses to value its assets, which was up from 6.9% to 7.2%, reflecting the general increase in bond yields over the period. But that negative impact was offset by the positive gains from inflation in its underlying cash flows and also from a number of asset management initiatives. The board reiterated its target dividend yield for 2024 at 8.4p, which the current price of around 140p represents a prospective yield of 6%. Turning to other news, there were a scattering of announcements, which I'll briefly summarise. As always, you can see a full summary of all the latest news announcements and daily price NAV and discount moves on the Moneymakers website, if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle. Amongst those announcements, I noted the fact that John Bennett, the manager of the Henderson European Focus Trust, ticker HEFT, has announced that he is going to retire in August 2024. 
having been the manager of this particular trust for 13 years, notable for his always trenchant and interesting views on the state of the world. The board says it's got uh, a succession plan in hand, as you would expect. The current co-fund manager is a gentleman called Tom O'Hara. Elsewhere, we heard that Boussard and Gavaudan, which is a hedge fund vehicle, has issued a circular confirming its proposals for a managed wind-down. They say that they hope to complete the wind-down by December 24. So still some way to go before that can be achieved, assuming that shareholders approve this decision. If so, they will be offered the option of a rollover into a sub-fund of another Boussard and Gavaudan hedge fund, or there will be the option of a cash exit. The shareholder meeting to approve that is held on 28th of September. We also heard from the Board of Real Estate Credit Investments, ticker RECI, which is, as its name suggests, a debt investment trust. The board there announced that they are initiating a share buyback programme up to a value of £5 million in the period to the end of March next year. That trust has a market cap of around £290 million and trades on a discount somewhere in the region of 14 to 15%. So that is in keeping with the general trend of boards looking to at least restrain the widening of their discount by a share buyback programme. Elsewhere, there was confirmation that another debt fund, Axiom European Debt Trust, ticker AXI, has confirmed that its shares have been suspended and the listing has been cancelled. That trust has also voted itself out of existence. There was also a trading update from Literacy Capital, the private equity trust, ticker BOOK, B-O-O-K, which dedicates a small portion of its gains to supporting literacy charities, That reported in this trading update that it had completed the sale of one investment at a 53% premium to its end March NAV, representing a gain of more than 10 times return on the original invested capital. And that follows the earlier realisation of another investment, which was disposed of at a 9.8 times return on initial invested capital. The board of Literacy Capital said that it would be dedicating 20 million cash raised from its latest sale to repay some of its revolving credit facility. That deal is expected to complete in October. The trust also reported that over the three months to the end of June, its NAV was up around 4.5%, with most of the uh, investee companies trading largely positively, although two of the businesses have seen their value cut. The board also said that it will be looking to buy back shares should a discount on this particular trust emerge again, as it did towards the end of last year but it has been trading more recently at a premium. There were also updates from a number of other alternative asset trusts, including Biopharma Credit, ticker BPCR, where it has again amended the loan agreement with its largest holding, Lumina DX, which has been run into trouble and the board is having to make a series of initiatives to try and rescue this particular loan arrangement that it has. It's taken a number of seats on the board of this company and the market obviously is awaiting to hear whether or not that loan is going to have to be written off or not. That's helped to drive the shares of this one down and has gone again to a significant discount. And there were also updates from Princess Private Equity Trust, ticker PEY, from Roundhill Music, ticker RHM, from Triple Point Housing, ticker SOHO, which has completed a sale of some of its housing projects. And finally, from Harmony Energy Income Trust, 
which is one of the battery storage vehicles, which reported, unfortunately, that it had made an error in the calculation of its NAV and had overstated its earlier published figures by 3p a share. Always something of an embarrassment for a company to have to admit that it's got its previous numbers wrong. That particular trust trades on a discount of more than 20% and offers a yield of around 5.2%. And that brings us to the end of this relatively short summary of this week's news and announcements. It's been a quiet week, as I said at the uh, top of the podcast, but there's always things to talk about in the investment trust sector for those of us who are aficionados. So my first question to Andrew McHattie, when I caught up with him again this week, was what's been happening in the sector since we last spoke, which is only a couple of months ago. It's been rather a kind of volatile period, is it not, for the markets and for investment trust? People still trying to work out where interest rates are going and uh, whether these discounts are so wide as to become attractive at last. Yes, broadly speaking, it's not been a great time for markets over the summer, has it? And um, the market has found some new things to worry about with now the prospect of deflation in China, as well as our ongoing struggles with inflation. So overall, we've seen the investment trust sector index fall off by a few percentage points. So we've seen no joy in our quest for narrowing discounts yet. They're still at about the same level they were a couple of months ago, roughly 17% or so, I think, on the broad market. So nothing much to report there in the way of progress. But of course, we have seen quite a lot of individual news within that. So continuing consolidation, more activity, more mergers, always plenty to think about. So I think it's fair to say that if they hadn't been thinking about it before, the boards of investment trusts are starting to act as they should do when we get into periods like this with widening discounts, some perhaps a little slower than others. I think there's been some comment this week about whether the incentives are there for boards to get on and do what needs to be done in these periods, whether that's consolidation or introducing share buybacks or selling things or whatever the action might be. But overall, I mean, we're now more than 18 months into this derating period as interest rates rise. What's your sort of overall impression of how the sector is doing in terms of uh, coming to terms with what for many trusts has been a relatively new experience? The industry is appearing to be a bit more of a super tanker than a speedboat, isn't it, in terms of how long it takes to react. And it has taken a little while, but certainly things have been happening, not just the corporate activity with the headline mergers, but in the background, I've noticed now there's a lot of share buybacks coming through in the alternatives asset sector, which it's easy to forget simply didn't exist at all a few months ago. And now we're seeing them really quite widespread. And in certain cases, I think they've had an impact. In other cases, really, they're not large enough or not aggressive enough. So we're not seeing that. But they're giving investors at least some belief that boards are doing something to try and uh, pull in these discounts. But my feeling generally is that the market is a little bit stuck at the moment. It's um, maybe not looking out very far beyond this short-term pessimism. And so we're still in this process of adjustment to higher interest rates, where the higher discount rates are being used. So NAVs are just sliding off slightly as a result. And so my sense is that we're still somewhere deep in the woods and some boards are still adjusting to this new environment. 
We're looking at some of the movements that have been in ratings and in share prices over the last three months. I mean, it has been very much sort of up, down, up, hasn't it? Which is consistent with people trying to work out whether this interest rate cycle is coming close to a peak or not. Since in many cases, the market reaction seems to be just a kind of straight read across, you know, higher expectations of interest rates, discounts widen and vice versa. But if you look at one or two of the examples, I mean, Pantheon, the private equity trust, has been one of the trusts that's come out with a much stronger share buyback commitment than it had before, certainly. And that seems to have a bit of an impact. Certainly in the last few days, we've seen quite a lot of the infrastructure and some of the private equity trusts actually re-rate a little bit. The share prices have come back. Are you hoping that's a trend that's going to continue? We did talk about that last time. We thought maybe we've seen a, a kind of plateau in the derating that's been going on in those sectors. Well, I'm always hopeful, that's for sure. I think you're right that so far the recovery has been quite spotty and I think we can't yet claim it's across the board. But there are individual examples of trusts that have seemingly woken up a little bit from their slumber. So I've just noticed a few of the risers are names that have been previously depressed. So we have seen actually quite good rallies in individual names like Digital Nine Infrastructure. I noticed today that we had labs, life science reasons up 8% this morning, having been very quiet for a long time. So We are seeing individual names in property and renewables and private equity, these depressed areas coming up. And I think if we're looking at niche areas or edgy areas, the other one that has to merit a mention is growth capital, where again, we're not seeing any real momentum here across the board. But if you're looking at individual names, there have been one or two really amazing sharp increases The one that really springs to mind is Seraphim Space, which actually hit a low of 26 pence in July and is 47 pence this morning. So that's a very significant recovery on the one hand. On the other hand, it's still on a 50% discount. So it just speaks to the depths to which it had plumbed. So we are seeing some gains also in the same sector, hydrogen one capital growth up 15% this month after some reassurance that its NAV in the second quarter was also pretty good, up a touch. So, yes, we're seeing certain shafts of light in the darkness, but there's no way we've entered a general recovery yet, so it's not too late to buy. And this is also August, which is a very quiet time from a sort of trading point of view. A lot of farm managers are away on holiday and so on. Therefore, it only takes one significant buyer or two significant buyers to make quite a big move in the share price. But of course, that's also an interesting point from the point of view of private investors who maybe haven't been through one of these uh, derating cycles before. When the ratings do move, quite often they move very sharply. So you've been sitting there for a while thinking, oh, that looks a really interesting discount around uh, you know, 20% or 30%. I'm just going to wait for the signal that things are better. And then by the time you get to that point, whoosh, it's gone. That discount has disappeared. I think that was a point that uh, Nick Greenwood of Mygo Opportunities Trust was making the other day. When the market does turn in rating terms, it can be quite sudden and quite sharp, can't it? So if you haven't acted now and it turns out to be the bottom of the cycle, you may well miss out, might you not? This is a question I'm asked quite frequently because it's not a comfortable experience buying too early in this market where you identify something that you feel has excellent value and a nice wide discount. And so you buy in only to see that discount get a little bit wider and the yield to go up a little bit more. And you're feeling a little bit daft at that point. But of course, you do have to make sure you're in the market before it turns 
because if you do wait for the turn and try and time it, well, you're going to be disappointed. History is littered with corpses, with bodies of people who tried to do that and failed miserably. So you do need to get in before the turn. And sometimes that means you're not buying at the very best price. But the key is just to try and buy at good value. And then you can sit tight, be patient and exercise some of the traditional virtues of the long term private buyer. That is certainly a lesson for the ages. And of course, it runs against all the psychological biases that we have, the temperamental biases we have, the behavioural biases we have, that always prevents us from actually doing that, or seems to in many cases. You've just got to have a thick skin, haven't you, to take the plunge and uh, trust that your sense of the values is actually real. We've seen these movements in the uh, alternative asset space, but in terms of the uh, equity trusts overall, not been quite so marked. The UK market still remains pretty flat. Uh, the technicals aren't looking very good on that one at the moment. And of course, the US market, there's been all this excitement about NVIDIA and the few stocks that are carrying the US market higher. But then there's the China worries as well thrown in. So I think my experience is that in these kind of situations, September, October tends to be the months when uh, things actually kind of clarify a little bit. And you either get a nice run into the end of the year, quite often we see that, or alternatively, we get some kind of confirmation that we're not going higher. Have you got a feeling about that and where we're going from here? Well, I think you're right in terms of the the seasonal bias about when this happens. September is often an exciting month for good or bad. So yes, I think that might happen again. My sense is that it depends how far forward equity markets are prepared to look, because I think in the near term, the outlook is still quite cloudy, actually. Interest rates are probably going to tick up one more time. Inflation is a bit stubborn in the UK, that's for sure, not so bad elsewhere. So it may be that there's not very much encouragement to come from macro news in the short term, particularly if the news from China continues to be quite poor, as it has been of late. So we could see the brakes put on in that regard. But I think if equity markets are prepared to look a little further out and to look through this period and start thinking about 2024, then at that point, I think the picture clears quite considerably. We are not necessarily going to have a lot of growth, but you don't need that much growth with equity prices at these levels. So there's plenty of scope for a rally. Whether or not that comes through, I think, remains to be seen. Again, all you can do is get into position And perhaps buy things as well that are giving you a decent yield. So if you're not getting a big rally in capital terms straight away, at least you're being paid to wait and you're not really losing out in real terms or not very much anyway in real terms. Just going back to some of these alternatives in terms of the recent results we've seen, we have seen a number of private equity trusts have started a process of realising some of their assets. You never quite know. This week, for example, we heard from Literacy Capital, which is an interesting UK-based private equity trust, which has performed very well since it came to the market. They've made a couple of disposals at really big uh, uplifts on their valuations. We've also seen something like HG Capital say it's realised two or three of its investments at a significant premium to current values. But of course, the problem here is in a market when uh, everybody's sort of sceptical about valuations, People just tend to turn around and say, well, they just sell some of the better stuff. They haven't got rid of the worst stuff. What are your thoughts about those two? I mean, these are trusts that I've followed for a long time, certainly in the case of HG Capital. HG Capital performed tremendously well over the longer term. Uh, Literacy Capital has only been on the market for a couple of years. But um, what are your thoughts about those two? They both uh, look interesting to me. 
I do own both, so I'm, I might have a little bias. So, yes, yeah, starting with Literacy Capital, this is such an interesting, quirky trust run by Paul and Richard Pindar, who are actually quite new to this sector, but they started off brilliantly with this trust. It's different from many others because clearly we think of private equity as a bit of a homogenous industry, but it's not. It's a spectrum. And there's quite a lot of risk difference across that spectrum. I think with literacy capital, they would certainly claim to be at the lower risk end of that. They're really involved in buyouts and they focus a lot on smaller UK businesses that have been founder led and that founder is retiring or there are succession issues. And they'll take over the company and work with the founder. And really, quite often, they describe themselves as mentors and colleagues. They're working to grow the company. They put in new management quite often, put in a financial officer. And they use their commercial nous to effect some bolt-on acquisitions or to move the company into different areas. And they've been very, very successful with this. So I think initially there was quite a lot of scepticism that they could maintain their early record, but they have done. And they keep on selling things actually at very large premiums to their carrying values. This last one was at a 54% uplift. And the more evidence you have that it's repeatable, then I think the more convincing it becomes. Interestingly, in their last results statement, they did say that more realisations are expected over the next 18 months. So although this is a private equity trust that is not on a big discount, partly because of its fine record, I think it's actually still worth adding if you're really looking to add quality to your portfolio. And if we're looking at quality, then HG Capital is probably top of the tree. If you're old enough to have been around in this sector for a while, you'll know that HG Capital has been very close to the top of the performance tables in the private equity sector over a very long period. It specialises in what it does. It buys a lot of software companies that are really integral to the way business works. Nothing's changing there. They're very good at what they do. And again, historically, this is a trust where you quite often had to pay a premium actually to get in. And that's not the case now. It's on a discount, a double-digit discount, which is not as wide as some. But again, it looks like a bargain to me to just buy in now and tuck these away and hold them for the long term. Yeah, so if you believe in the argument that quality always outs in the end, then I think that's a good argument for HG Capital. They have a sort of bias towards kind of the tech sector as well, which has obviously done well this year, but that may have helped a little bit. But they're not in the very big name, the mega caps. Obviously, they're doing their own thing. But in terms of literacy capital, that was interesting because that went to quite a significant discount briefly and some smart people snapped those up. And I noticed in their latest announcement, they did say they will buy back shares if discount re-emerges, which gives you some confidence as well about the kind of stability of the rating, if you like. One other thing I thought I might just mention with you, Andrew, is uh, I don't know if you follow Biopharma Credit at all, which is a debt trust, which has performed very, very well. Again, over the years, got a very good track record. Until recently, when it's had this issue with one of its portfolio investments, one of its set of loans, which is uh, among its largest, in fact, if not the largest, and it's now 
had to amend the terms of its loan agreement, I think for the 10th time now, which is always not a good sign. The shares of this one have moved out to a discount as well, which is, uh, again, unusual for this particular trust. Do you have a view about this one? Obviously, they lend to uh, pharmaceutical companies. They have a good track record, a lot of experience in the sector. What's your view about that one? Yes, a good, strong track record interrupted now by this large hiccup. This is what tends to happen with debt companies, actually, that they have a perfect track record until it's not. And then suddenly, actually, when something goes wrong, it tends to be quite significant. And that's true in this case, because this asset, I think, is about 17% or something of the total. So it's not a small part of the portfolio. But what has happened now is that the discount has widened out, actually, I think, to more than compensate for this issue. So it's not likely there's going to be a total loss here. If the company does continue to struggle, this holding company, then actually Biopharma Credit will take control of it. And then they'll either be able to force a sale or they'll run it for a while or or they'll sell parts of it, but they will realise some value. And so my feeling is that the discount has already taken account of this. It doesn't mean the discount's going to come in quickly once this matter is resolved, because it always leaves a stain, doesn't it? But I do think that there's no reason to panic here. I think there's a bit of a cloud over the company, but it'll be all right once it moves past this. I think they've said that they've got some seats on the board now, as you say, and they're going to be taking a very hands-on approach to this company. And I've seen some analyst notes suggesting that even if the thing is a complete write-off, it will still not damage the NEV as much as uh, the discount is implying. So it'll be interesting one to watch there. It could be a bargain. We don't know. But these problems do, as you say, leave a bit of a lingering taste after them. What else have you been looking at in general terms across the sector? Any particular names that you've been looking at recently that strike you as being of interest? Yes, I mean, I I am tempted by these very wide discounts because I don't think they will last all that long. Again, I think this is because of my longevity in the sector. I've been through this before. I've seen these discounts emerge and widen out and then disappear again. And so I think it's a good idea to take advantage of them while they exist. And of course, we might still be talking about them in a year's time, but my suspicion is that we won't. So above all, I think the greatest opportunity is in the renewables infrastructure sector at the present time, where the tailwinds are not going to disappear anytime soon. There's still a lot of government backing to expand this sector. And whilst there are certainly some supply side constraints here, I was just reading about the availability of wind turbines, for example. Nevertheless, I think there's strong growth likely to come through And right now, you can combine purchases that offer you very wide discounts with very high yields. And it seems to me that's a terrific combination because you can wait for those discounts to come in and get paid handsomely while you wait. So I'm looking at trusts like Digital 9 Infrastructure, like Triple Point Energy Efficiency, SDCL Energy Efficiency, I like If you're a bit bolder, you could look at US Solar Fund, which is just appointing a new manager. And it might take a little while, actually, for that to work through. But it does seem to be a good blue chip manager there. And I think that uh, the prospects there look much more promising than they have been before. And I think, again, if you're fairly bold, then uh, Gore Street Energy Storage in the battery sector is also worth a look. Because although there have been project delays there, 
And I think there's some concern about falling returns in the UK market. GSF has some international diversification and the yield there is 9.3% with the shares on a 30% discount. So there's a great deal of value in that sector. And if you can combine a yield of somewhere between 8 and 10% to pay you to wait, then that does look very good to me. And some of those yields are very well covered, as we've heard. I noticed the Green Coat UK Wind, for example, they're perhaps the, in one of the strongest positions, but they put out some figures showing that they, even if power prices collapse right down to levels we haven't seen for years, the dividend will still be handsomely covered. So you have got the reassurance that at least you'll get that dividend for the next four or five years at least. So that's also another consoling factor, I would say. A final question then is, um, do you think we're going to see the ARBs come back into the sector? What I mean by that is there are some firms that specialize in what's called uh, arbitrage or in many cases activist trusts. They come in and they try and shake up the boards or give them a kick up the backside to get on and do something. Do you think we're going to see uh, some of those come back? We haven't really seen them so far emerge in the sector. They have been a big factor at different times over the years. But uh, do you think we see signs of that coming back? I remember them well from the mid-1990s when quite a few arrived, uh, and I've been surprised that there haven't been any this time around. We used to call them vulture funds back in the day, and I was expecting them to fly back in. We have just seen one, actually, which is a Saba Capital Management, which is a, a US-based investor, quite substantial investor, actually. And um, they've taken some stakes across the sector. Interestingly, I was in a manager meeting a couple of weeks ago, and this was the first topic of conversation because the manager was extremely concerned that this ARB had appeared on their register. So there are a number of trusts here. I'll mention a few. There's Henderson Opportunities Trust, Herald, Pershing Square, Schroeder Midcap, European Opportunities Trust. So there's quite a range of holdings actually held by Saba. And so far, they haven't been remotely aggressive about anything and they haven't requested any changes or they haven't requisitioned any meetings. But they've appeared on the register with quite chunky stakes actually in these trusts. It may just be that that's an investment because they have been attracted by the discounts and they believe that um, these are decent trusts that should bounce back or it might presage something further to come we don't know so we'll have to wait and see at the moment that's the only one that i know about there could be more if these discounts do persist for a very much longer you would think they should attract some more in the way of arbitrages indeed you would and that would be a positive sign i think probably They don't always get it right, of course. Sometimes they have to retreat with their tails between their legs when they fail to get what they achieve. But you would have thought in this market that uh, particularly if they can bring a little bit of firepower, which is, you know, some quite big tickets, if you like, that should have an impact and certainly wake up the market makers and uh, wake up the boards. Well, let's see if that happens. That will be a very interesting development indeed. Thank you, Andrew, for your thoughts this uh, quiet August midweek day. But uh, we'll look forward to speaking again in a few weeks' time. And uh, let's see if September turns out to be as exciting as it sometimes can be. So that was Andrew McHattie, editor of the Investment Trust newsletter and a regular conversationalist on this podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. So as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity uh, this week to catch up with Ben Conway, who is head of uh, fund management at Hawksmoor Investment Management, a wealth management and fund management firm. And he and his colleagues have been publishing some very interesting thoughts on the whole investment trust sector. 
what it does right, but also uh, perhaps questions that it needs to answer, which have been highlighted by the significant derating that we've seen across the whole investment trust universe in the last 20 months or so. However, we're going to start off by zeroing in, Ben, on this issue of cost disclosure. It's a very much a, a live topic in an investment trust world, and it all stems back to uh, some regulatory changes that, that came in last year. Perhaps you could, first of all, just explain what those changes were, and then we'll go on to talk about what the impact of that has been. Sure, and uh, thanks very much for having me on, Jonathan. We'll try not to go right deep into the weeds because your listeners will get bored, but this stuff goes all the way back to the AFIM Directive, Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive, in, which came in in 2013. And investment companies were pointed at and said that you are alternative investment funds. Let's just park that for a second. It's just relevant. 2018 comes along and then you have MIFID 2 and PRIPS that comes along. EU level legislation, we were part of the EU at that time. And so to the extent that we're part of the EU, we are subject to those regulations. And MIFID 2, just to take a step back and just remember that it's not as if somebody somewhere has this agenda against investment companies. So what I'm about to tell you is all sort of unfortunate, and it's all the law of unintended consequences. And I think that investment companies have been unfortunately caught up in this. I'm not trying to point blame at anyone and say, you've got it in for investment companies. We're just trying to point out something that we think has just gone wrong and slipped through the net, if you like. And so MIFID 2 is well intended. Part of MIFID 2, and if people are really interested, go look at Section 2, Article 25. It says, we want to aggregate costs. We want uh, investors in investment products to know what the total cost of that product is. And what they're trying to get at is any cost that is going to be deducted from the value of that investment as a result of running that investment product. So, for example, think of an AMC or the costs of advice. Those are the sorts of four examples that are mentioned within this Section 2, Article 25, but it's not clearly defined. It's not this is like you point at this cost, this cost, this cost, and aggregate it all up. It's not clearly defined. At the same time as MIFID 2 comes in, we have PRIPS. PRIPS relates to package retail products in the investment and insurance landscape. And what PRIPS does for investment companies is say, right, you need to have this kit, this key information document, part of which tells investors what the ongoing costs of running that investment company are. So there's a number there, right? So just to interrupt, so the good idea behind it was you want to standardise the information that all these different investment companies or funds provide to the consumers, yeah. yeah. And indeed, that the people who manufacture products that might use this stuff aggregate all of these costs into one number. So people can just say, regardless of what it is, they can say, well, what does this thing cost to me? What does investing in this thing cost me? You know, whether it's a fund of funds or just a fund, etc., or an investment company, what does it cost me? So this PRIPS comes in, and because investment companies have been pointed at and said, you are an alternative investment fund, you are falling within scope of PRIPS. Because you're a fund, there is a cost that has to be declared. This is adopted within the UK. It comes in by the FCA. It comes into the COBS sourcebook, Conduct of Business Sourcebook. You can look at this, page nine, chapter six, and it echoes MIFID 2. And it says, there are costs that need to be disclosed. And you can look at Annex 2 within this COBS sourcebook and you can say, okay, what costs are these? And here it is. Here's the crux. It specifically says, ongoing charges that are deducted from the value of the financial instrument. All sounds really sensible. Here's the problem. So th this is how it's happened. And because of all these various pieces of legislation, various pieces of regulations, investment companies 
have been included in this, but it's wrong. Let me just also just say the, the series of events, the timeline, of course, and this is all dates back to 2018. Why now? Well, because from, from 2018, wealth management portfolios, so that is, you know, if you've got a just a discretionary private client portfolio, i.e. not a fund, you know, with your investment manager, maybe at Hawksmoor, maybe any other large firms available, they are starting to disclose investment company costs from as far back as 2018. So in our language of our campaign group, the frog starts to boil in 2018 because already an investment manager, when they're putting together a portfolio for their client, if they include investment companies, the cost of delivering that portfolio already looks higher. So already they're looking at investment companies going, hmm, that's a pain. 2020, the Investment Association comes and says, these Investment Association being the industry body that governs retail funds as opposed to private client portfolios. They say in 2020, listen, everybody, we've got these investment company costs uh, via PRIPS. By the way, PRIPS never officially came into the UK. It's always going to come into the UK at some point in the future, 2026, I believe. But in preparation for that, and because there's the existence of these documents, we believe you fund managers should start including investment company costs into your aggregated OCF figures. It's guidance. And they're well-intended. It's extremely well-intended because they want harmonisation. And you've also got wealth management portfolios that are including these costs. Nobody really does it. Few do. Summer 2022, the IA comes out and says, no, 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 look, everybody, you have got to do this. Prips is coming in. You've got to do this. Harmonisation, etc. And so from the summer of 2022, far more funds, or specifically it's the ACD of funds, authorised corporate directors who are in charge of calculating these things, they start to insist on the inclusion. And it's at that point that the frog really starts boiling because you've had this slow, gentle dissatisfaction from the wealth management community. Now you've got the fund management community saying, gosh, if we include these costs, then our OCFs are roaring higher. And that makes us very, very uncommercial. And the reason why we're so aggravated is it comes back to costs that are deducted from the value of the financial instrument. Investment companies are listed. They have a net asset value. All the costs that are expressed in their KID documents are a percentage on that net asset value. But we do not buy the NAV. As you know, we pay the share price. And as with any listed company, the share price is a discounting mechanism for lots of different things, among them being expenses. And these costs are just one of the expenses that are discounted in the share price. So from our point of view, it is not correct to assume that that kid cost, that ratio that's expressed as a percentage of the NAV, is appropriate to be disclosed because it's already discounted in your share price. Well, the first thing I have to say is you've obviously gone deep into the weeds, and I'm not sure that many of us will follow you into the minutiae of the actual regulations. So we had well-intentioned uh, ideas at the beginning. We want to harmonise it. And also because in the past, when you were given a cost figure, you would tend to be given the annual management charge, which is what the fund manager charges for an investment company. And that was fine. But there were also other costs that came on top of that, which you weren't necessarily told about, or at least you had an interest in, because they were legitimate uh, costs in one sense, things like additional costs that firms incur when they are managing an investment trust. So you can see the, the logic behind it. So first of all, let's just be clear about what difference in round numbers does it make? You say it makes a hugely big difference, but give us an example. I mean, what would you say the right figure would be for a typical uh, investment company? And what does it look like when you actually do it the way that the regulations require you to do it? Well, 
My honest opinion, I think the cost of investing in the investment company is zero, but that's because you, you don't invest in the NAV, you invest in the share price, just to make that absolutely clear. So I just don't agree with the concept of cost disclosure at all. We need to come back to that because we need to speak about the fact that some investment companies are doing exactly the same thing as operating companies who don't have to disclose cost. And because it's not just the AMC, you're right, there's lots of other costs. The ongoing cost in investment company can vary hugely. And also there is no, as yet, a uniformity over how those costs are calculated. So some people are including some things and some others. But for example, the impact that it had on our funds, it basically lifted our OCF by between 40 and 60 basis points. Um, At the moment, we've only got between 20 and 25% of our funds in investment trusts. So you can see the impact on our OCF of investing in these things. But at the low end, the ongoing charge of an investment trust is going to be about 1%. And at the high end, it can go quite significantly higher, depending on the nature of that investment trust or investment company's activities. If it's a property company that's incurring transaction costs, which can be large. If it's a, a private equity trust that's investing in underlying funds and on and on and on. Yeah, I put a table in of OCFs in the annual investor trust handbook I produce, and some of them are like two and a half percent, something like that. Oh, and larger, and larger, and larger, indeed. Yeah. All right. So the question then is, what do you want the uh, regulators to do about this? What do you want the industry to do about it as well? Uh, whose responsibility is it to try and change this uh, if it has to be changed? And then we'll come back to the question of legitimacy of it all after that. So, what do you actually want to see happen now? While we sort this out. While we have the right people going into the weeds on MIFID 2, PRIPS, AFMD, all these things, I would like there to be a temporary suspension of the requirement to include investment companies in aggregated portfolio costs, whether you're a fund or whether you're a wealth manager running a private client portfolio. I think it just be suspended. So we think we should temporarily go back to the pre-2018 world where investment companies didn't carry a cost. They were just, for cost purposes, they were like having equities in your portfolio, inverted commas, free to own. In the meantime, I think we need to get all of the relevant stakeholders having a properly informed discussion. So that means investment association, association of investment companies, the two relevant trade bodies here, potentially also PIMFA on the private wealth management side, HM Treasury, and of course, the FCA. And we need to really hash out whether people agree with us. And I think it's important to state the outset. When I say we, I'm talking about myself and a couple of other sort of hardy campaigners have been on this issue for about 18 months. We don't necessarily have a monopoly of wisdom here and we're open-minded. But I think it's what's very, very, very clear is something's gone wrong. To, to illustrate the point further, the UK is the only regulatory body that treats listed companies in this way. There is no other European regulatory body that points at a listed company and says you are an alternative investment fund. So there's one regulatory failure in the sense that we are clearly deviating from other EU states. Well, we're not in the EU, which is also kind of relevant because we should be taking the advantage of that in a positive way here. But the point is, ironically enough, all the other EU nations aren't treating similar companies in this way. So there's an unlevel playing field. But even within the UK at the moment... There are many very large asset managers who still do not include investment companies in their OCFs. So these are fund management companies. Wealth management companies are doing it, but funds aren't. So some very, very large asset managers are not doing it because number one, at the moment, it's still just IA guidance, which is unenforceable. It's not a regulation. And secondly, the position of these very, very large, these are the largest asset managers in the world, by the way, who form a substantial proportion of the assets in the investment association sectors. They are doing it quite rightly, in our view, under the cover of international standards and principles are saying we don't think it's appropriate to disclose these costs. 
because it's only in the UK that you're requiring us to do so. It doesn't make any sense. As I said, it comes back to the logic of the fact that these are listed companies with a share price and a NAV, and the share price is already doing the discounting of costs for you. So something needs to be done, and there's no reason why we can't do it in the UK because we're not in the EU anymore to the extent that we're covered by that. That's gone. We could change it, but it does require some action. And presumably in the first instance, that action has to be taken by the FCA. Is that right? Yeah. The overriding uh, regulatory structure. Uh, And presumably try to enforce it as well. Well, in terms of the short-term temporary solution, I suppose the IA could do something and reverse their guidance, but that doesn't help wealth managers because the IA are only responsible for funds. So yes, I think the cleanest way would be the FCA to announce something and say a temporary suspension of the requirement to disclose these things. Yes, that's what we very much like to happen. You could say, well, why do you need that temporary suspension? Why don't you just keep working on the reform of the regulations, particularly because we do have Edinburgh reforms. Jeremy Hunt has announced Edinburgh reforms. He's also announced that we're revoking PRIPs in the UK and we're outside the EU. So we've got an opportunity to reform lots of parts of our financial services sector and roll back some of the EU level regulations that we don't like and are hampering us. But that's going to take up to many years to sort out. And in the meantime, I think that you can clearly see that something's gone wrong in the UK's investment company sector. And I think that this issue is one of the factors, not the only factor, responsible for the very, very wide discounts that we're seeing. So we need to do something about it quickly. So I was going to come on to that because that is, in a way, the most important thing. So first of all, you have to ask the question, well, why does this all matter? Does anybody take any notice of these figures anyway? Some people would say, if you're a client of a wealth management firm, until recently, did you actually know about this? Did you care about these figures? Is it such a big deal? Uh, don't we operate in a kind of efficient market where people should be able to do their own work and find out what the right figures are? So why is it such a problem? Why is it contributing to the, the derating of investment companies that you've just uh, mentioned? Well, first of all, it should matter. If some people are disclosing and some aren't, then it's anti-competitive. So you're not comparing apples to apples. If some people are disclosing these costs and some aren't, well, that's just not fair. So you've got consumers looking at these things saying that fund costs X percent to invest in, that one costs Y percent, but the one that costs Y percent may be looking more expensive just because they're disclosing things the others aren't. So that on its own should be enough. But why is it so important? Look, for some people, it doesn't matter. For some people, they just care about what is performance going to be after all these fees. But here's the thing. You can't guarantee future performance. And this is where the interaction of consumer duty rules is so important. But even before consumer duty rules, this was still particularly important for a certain segment of the market, which is the financial intermediary community, IFAs, financial advisors. And financial advisors are really, I suppose, the gatekeepers to a large proportion of the nation's savings. So there are going to be armies of retail investors who are doing their own investment. But the bigger, the majority of this nation's pool of savings that's directed into funds is directed into funds by financial advisors. And when financial advisors sit down with their clients and do their financial planning meetings, they sit down and they say, right, we need to talk about your life for the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And to achieve your financial goals, we're going to invest your money. And we're going to invest your money and we're going to assume a financial return and we're going to assume a cost. This is where it comes in. Financial advisors do not like investing in anything that has a big inverted commas, cost, because they won't toggle the top bit, the financial return and say, hmm, this is a more expensive thing. Therefore, I'm going to say that it's going to provide a higher financial return. They just assume a constant financial return, because who knows what financial returns are going to be in the future. And then they will say the cost of provision of this solution. And this is part of the reason why passives have been so popular, because the cheaper the investment solution, the lower the cost number you put in, 
And then they can say to their client, look, here is the total cost of this offering. It's the cost of the investment solution. It's my advice fee. And it's the platform fee that's going to hold all these things. And the rule of thumb, even before consumer duty came in, was to keep that below 2%. So you can start to see the inclusion investment company costs into investment solutions is problematic because it's causing the OCFs of investment solutions to soar higher to the point where very few IFAs are going to be willing to invest in it. So if you are projecting in these forward projections that you're putting 7% or 10% or something like that for your uh, expected return over the long periods of time, and if you have to stick in 2.5% or something, that's going to do some damage to the numbers, right? It's really punitive. And it's so frustrating for us because this element of cost is just inappropriate. As I said, I keep coming back to the fact that it's not directly impacting the value of your financial instrument because you buy the share price, not the NAB. It's so frustrating for us. I suppose if there was room for, well, I still just think from an intellectual point of view, it's wrong. But our frustration would perhaps be lessened if there was a bit more wriggle room for advisors to be more lenient on those costs or or take a view and say, okay, these are costs are higher for X, Y, Z reasons. You know, we're going to get a better risk adjusted return by going into this. But of course... It's very difficult for them to do that. And unfortunately, again, the FCA is so well-intended, but the FCA are really pushing advisors into thinking in this way, into thinking about costs, because they want to ensure value for money for clients. This is where consumer duty comes in. The principles of consumer duty are fantastic. They're trying to ensure that the underlying retail investor, that's the person on the street whose money is being invested here, those people are protected all the way along the value chain distribution and manufacturer and that every part of that value chain even if they're offering product or they're manufacturing product they're justifying the cost of that it's very 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 difficult to demonstrate fair value if your costs are high the great irony of consumer duty is is an attempt to distinguish between value and cost the truth is that the shortcut to illustrating fair value or value for money is cost. So segueing on to another really disappointing development and unintended consequences, not just the fact that IFAs are saying, that's just too expensive. I'm not going to invest in you. It takes me too long to demonstrate fair value. I haven't got the time to go into the DD to demonstrate that this more expensive solution is fair value. I'm just going to invest in a cheap solution. It's the retail platforms And this is what your listeners must have seen, is that a very, very well-known retail platform has started to kick off funds for Havit. Well, they don't state the reason why they do it, but I think that the assumption is that they're doing it because the costs of these funds are too high. Why are the costs of these funds too high? It's because they're investing in investment trusts. And from the summer of 2022, their OCF suddenly jumped up taking them beyond what was probably a 2% rule or something. And so the retail platform is saying in order to comply with consumer duty, we have to have some way of demonstrating that we're filtering the funds that we're offering retail clients and looking after fair value. And this is where they deploy the shortcut and say something like anything above 2% must be not fair value. So you're getting off our platform. So you've seen it with RIT Capital, you've seen it with, with uh, Premier Might and Worldwide Opportunities, you've seen it with Jupiter Funds and Investment Trusts, you've seen it with Jupiter Merlin Real Return, I could go on. And it's starting to impact not just funds and investment trusts, but investment trusts themselves as well. So it's hindering consumer choice now. 
So uh, I've got two questions to follow on from that. Uh, let's take the first one. Going back in the history of funds over the last 50 years, the great Jack Bogle, who started Vanguard, enunciated the cost-matter hypothesis because actually people in the past didn't take any account of costs, and they therefore were often uh, very disappointed when it turned out the actual costs that were taken off their investment in whatever form that was turned out to be very poor. I mean, I think the instinct to go for costs is right, but you're saying that it's been overdone. And in the case of investment companies, it's a distortion. Yes. The next question, of course, is you say that the share price already discounts the costs that are, are there, uh, and they should be taken into account in the net value as well, of course. But are you saying, therefore, that other things being equal, that investment trusts should always trade at a discount because they're <laughs> operating the costs that would otherwise be disclosed? Are you saying that? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I think you're right. All other things being equal, you're right. The fact that there are those costs that are impacting the net asset value is a downward pressure on the share price relative to net asset value. You're absolutely right. Discounts and premia are really an expression of sentiment and they're not in the control of anybody. So first of all, I think, yes, if you follow our line of argument, these fees are a downward pressure on the share price relative to NAV. But there are a whole host of other things That doesn't preclude the fact that investment trusts can never trade at a premium, of course. And this is starting to feed into perhaps some of the other ills we see in the sector, in that boards should be doing everything in their power to demonstrate the reasons why their investment trusts should be trading at a premium. And through time, with good governance and with good practice and good valuation practices, there should be a much higher probability of investment trusts trading at a premium. But yes, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. That is what I'm saying, which I think is entirely appropriate. But one thing I just want to bring in, though, really important, is this distinction between companies that are not structured investment companies and those that are. And let me give you a brilliant example. Seagrow, Tritax Big Box. Seagrow is a REIT, right, which I think it owns at uh, Big Park near uh, Heathrow. Is that the one? Probably. It's one of the largest listed property companies in the UK. The point is, is that it's free to invest in because the way it's structured it doesn't have an external management company. It's, it's got a, what's called a Chapter 6 listing. A company that has what's called a Chapter 15 listing is an externally managed contract and is structured in a way that it has to produce a KID document and has a cost. Now, the great irony of this is that they're doing very, very similar activities, owning big warehouses and big distribution logistics centres. But because one is structured in the way it is, it's free to invest in. And because one is structured the way it is, it has a cost. And this despite the fact that if you look at a well-known accounting measure of cost within real estate, the EPRA cost ratio, Seagro has a higher EPRA cost ratio than Tritax Big Box. So why is it seen as cheaper to invest in than Tritax Big Box? So I think it's nuanced. It's not just a case of focusing on the fact that it's a fund. Because the way you posed the question to me, you said uh, there's fees and therefore it's going to trade at a discount to its NAV because of those fees or it's putting pressure on. But there's also the fact that you also have to view these things and not necessarily purely as funds when the nature of their activity is basically the same as an operating company. The reason why that they're structured as a fund is, well, there's lots of different reasons why they had to be structured in that way. But as a fund, they have to have an investment objective, which changes the way that people look at them saying, you're a fund. But the actual, what they're doing is the same as this operating company, Seagro, which may not have an explicit investment objective, the way it's expressed, but still doing the same thing. So this all sounds pretty serious. I mean, I was going to ask you what impact that on you. You have about 25, 30% of some of your funds in investment trusts. And you're saying that would be higher at the moment because you would be attracted by these significant discounts in some cases 
but you're not actually buying them all for that reason and for the technical reasons you just mentioned about actually what happens when you try to buy them. Yeah, we're just being so selective and our selectivity is guided by how wide the discount gets because eventually the discount is going to get so wide that despite these negative technical backdrops, the margin of safety becomes so enormous that you almost sort of feel like you have to start taking positions in some of these things. And the other thing the selectivity is guided by is the shareholder register and the attitude of the board to these discounts and whether these we're in a new era of entrenched wider discounts, you know, these awful things called Z-scores, which we detest. I should explain what a Z-score is. It's basically most useful as a trading tool rather than as an investment tool. It's basically how far the recent movement in share prices has deviated in mathematical terms from the mean and so on. Yeah. But I mean, you don't see them anywhere other than in broker's research, do you? No, but people use them informally, even if they don't realise it. So for example, let's say an investment trust for 10 years has traded between a 5% discount and a 20% discount. So it's cheap on a 20 and expensive on a five. And you sort of trade that range. Well, what if the new range is now 20 to 40? That's basically what I'm talking about. Has this pushed the new ranges of discounts wider, which is obviously a very, very negative development? We have to be mindful of this. We have a fiduciary duty to our clients. And if we are aware of these factors, we shouldn't blindly be sticking rigidly to a process. And our process is very much founded on the principles of margin safety evaluation. Well, if we think there's a very, very good reason for something going from cheap to even cheaper, then we'd be silly not to take that into account. So yes, it it certainly has affected our behaviour. Again, 10,000 feet in the air. What is the point of a stock market listing? We lose this. What is the point of the stock market? The point of a stock market listing, number one, is access to growth capital. That's it. The person who's listing and managing the company, it's giving them another avenue and hopefully a sometimes cheapest route to growth capital to grow the business. The second thing is democratising access to asset classes. And that's why the investment company is probably the UK financial services best innovation. 150 years old, everybody listening to this podcast probably can see the benefits of these things. But we really mustn't underestimate the fact that if it wasn't for investment companies, how would retail investors or smaller investors get access to some of these assets? The only other way is via private funds, which you need huge minimums, have extortionate fees and are difficult to get access to. So the investment company sector is is providing this wonderful service, let alone the amount of productive capital it's channeling into the UK economy. So this is why it really, really matters. And this is why it's so dangerous. And it's such a shame because Jeremy Hunt's Mansion House speech just outlined how he expects pension funds to be allocating 5% of their capital to private companies and infrastructure. And private companies, the definition also includes, by the way, AIM-listed companies. But anyway, my point being is that there's this wonderful vehicle standing everybody in the face that can do that for you. And if you're a pension fund looking at it, you can invest at a massive discount right now. But pension funds have got a charge cap, 0.75%. This is where, you know, our heads smash against the wall when in frustration This is another area where the investment company sector is being starved of this capital when really what we should be doing today, this is the great irony, is holding up this sector as this fantastic way of channeling capital into productive areas of the economy, particularly in an era where there are other solutions such as the long-term asset fund, which I think people can all see there are tremendous flaws with. Why aren't we championing this sector? Why aren't we doing more to support it? It's incredibly frustrating. That was Ben Conway, Head of Fund Management at Hawksmoor Investment Management, with his interesting views on the issue of costs and cost disclosure in the investment trust sector. I'm hoping to uh, return to a second part of this conversation in a couple of weeks' time, when I'll be talking through some of the other issues which uh, Hawksmoor have raised about the investment trust sector, and in particular about the IPO process and management and board issues. So that's something to look out for in the week's 
ahead. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.